William Wilberforce, born 1759 in London to a wealthy family, grew up receiving the finest of educations, and was elected to Parliament in 1780 at the incredibly young age of 21. Four years later, age 25, he went on vacation with Isaac Milner, a brilliant scientist and mathematician who also happened to be a Christian. So as you can imagine, these two intellectuals engaged in all sorts of discussions and debates, including the credibility of Christianity and the impact it must have on a person's life. Well, by the end of the trip, Wilberforce acknowledged a great sense of his own sinfulness in having so long neglected the unspeakable mercies of his great God and Savior. So he sought counsel from John Newton, once a slave boat captain, but now a leading pastor and preacher. Because Wilberforce was actually thinking about stepping down from politics and going into the ministry. But Newton and William Pitt, a close friend, soon to be prime minister, both urged him to stay in parliament and to serve Christ there. In fact, William Pitt, who was an unbeliever, said, surely the principles of Christianity must lead not only to meditation, but to action. So not only to your thinking, but to your living. So as a result, Wilberforce reached his famous conclusion that God has set before him two great goals in his life, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And you have to be clear, Wilberforce's decision to fight against the slave trade and the decline of morals, including drunkenness, prostitution, and and gambling, which was rampant in London at that point in time, had everything to do with his faith in the Lord Jesus. But of course, that was not a popular position to oppose the slave trade. So he immediately became the target of political accusations, threats on his life, and character slander. Nevertheless, Wilberforce put forward the bill, 1793, advocating for the abolition of the slave trade, and he went to work on public moral reform. In fact, one historian calculated that he was a member of 69 voluntary societies. In addition, he was constantly involved in church work, including missionary societies, sending missionaries to India and to Africa, the Foreign Bible Society, the Proclamation of Society Against Vice and Immorality, the School Society, the Sunday School Society, and the Society for Bettering the Condition of the Poor. And records confirm Wilberforce was not just publicly speaking into those situations, but privately giving money to at least 70 organizations. So he put his money where his mouth was, and he gave generously, consistent with his Christian convictions. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because Christianity looks like something. So not only does God save us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that salvation works itself out in every single area of our lives. And in particular, it looks like doing the will of God, even in the most difficult of situations. And make no mistake, life is incredibly difficult. Say it another way, right thinking about Jesus always leads to right living for Jesus, which includes persevering in the faith and not falling away, even when things are hard, even when things are really hard. But how do we do that? 
Well, by looking forward and knowing with deep conviction that at the end of all of this difficulty, there is the reward of eternal life waiting for us in God's eternal heavenly city when we will be in his presence for all eternity. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. It's on page 1001 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Title of my sermon this morning, Doing the Will of God. I encourage you to grab my outline, have it in the book of Hebrews. My goal this morning is not to overwhelm you, but instead to walk through the book of Hebrews one last time before moving on to our summer series in the parables. And I want to do that just to make sure that we have right thinking about Jesus. So making sure we know Jesus is greater in his person, Jesus is greater in his work, and Jesus is God's eternal salvation. Because that right thinking about Jesus is going to lead to right living for Jesus, which is where I want to camp out a bit at the end of our sermon this morning, landing on the three applications listed right there in your outline, drawing near to God in faith, holding faith fast to Christ in perseverance and stirring up one another to love. So let's start with A, Jesus is greater in his person. If you would follow along as I read Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Notice, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more superior to angels. So Jesus is, number one, greater than the angels, which the author argues at length, quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. But in verse 6, look at verse 6, he quotes Psalm 97. And he says, let all God's angels worship him. So worship Jesus, because Jesus is God's son, and Jesus is greater than the angels. So then if that's true, how should we respond? Well, chapter 2 tells us, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. So there's your purpose. Since Jesus is greater than the angels, don't fall away. Don't neglect so great a salvation. But Jesus is not just greater than the angels. He's number two, greater than Moses. If you would, flip forward to chapter 3, verse 1. The author says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So again, there's the consistent truth that Jesus is greater, greater than the angels, greater than Moses. But he's not just arguing theology for theology's sake, but instead he's calling us to persevere even in the midst of the difficulty because he goes right back to application. Verse 7, 
Therefore, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So right thinking about Jesus is so important so that you don't fall away, but instead persevere in your faith, living for the glory of God and doing the will of God. So right living for Jesus because Jesus is greater than the angels and Jesus is greater than Moses. Number three, Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priests. If you would look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. The author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priests. But this argument in particular in the book of Hebrews runs all the way from Hebrews 4.14 all the way to Hebrews 10.19. That's because he argues exactly why Jesus is a greater high priest, which is not just about his person, but instead it's about his work. So it's not about who Jesus is, but instead about what Jesus has done. So that's B, Jesus is greater in his work. And you see reason number one, just as soon as we move from Hebrews 4.14 to Hebrews 4.15, which says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what's reason number one? Jesus is without sin. Jesus is a sinless high priest. And therefore, he's radically different than the Old Testament priests who offered sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people over and over and over again, day after day. Hebrews 5.3 makes that clear. So the Old Testament priests were just as sinful as the people. That's why they were offering sacrifices for themselves. But not the Lord Jesus. Jesus is without sin which makes him an adequate substitute when he offers himself up once for all for the sins of his people. So it's absolutely essential that, number one, Jesus is a sinless high priest. But it's also essential that he's, number two, an eternal high priest. And just look at how quickly the author goes there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. The author says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 6, you are a priest forever, eternally, after the order of Melchizedek. And praise God that we now know who Melchizedek is, right? (laughs) The man who came up out of nowhere in Genesis 14, who's listed as the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and a person who appears to be eternal. And Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek's superiority. So the author argues that since the Levitical priest came out of Abraham, and since Abraham blessed Melchizedek, that makes the priesthood according to Melchizedek far greater in every possible way, including the reality that he's eternal, which enables him to save us eternally. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The author says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. He holds it eternally. 
because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is sinless, and since he's sinless, and since he's eternal, he's able to save eternally all those who repent, believe, and draw near to God through him, which is incredible, isn't it? I mean, what a glorious salvation, and what an awesome argument as you walk through it. And when you get to this point in the book, you really just expect the author to pause, take a break, and move immediately to application. But instead, he goes on, and he argues that not only is Jesus a sinless priest and an eternal priest, but number three, Jesus mediates a better covenant. And I just want to tell you, after we've been in Hebrews since November, and I've been reading Hebrews day after day for months, this is what stands out to me the most. Because when you come to Hebrews 8.6, look at Hebrews 8.6. The author says, so he's been arguing all the way up until this point. He comes to Hebrews 8.6. The author says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better. So Jesus mediates a better covenant since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then what happens? We're given this unbelievably long quote. I mean, do you know any other place in the New Testament where the author quotes a paragraph from the Old Testament? Usually he quotes a, a, a verse, a single verse, and then he argues from there. Never do I know another place in the New Testament where he quotes an entire paragraph from the Old Testament, but that's exactly what he does here. He quotes Jeremiah 31, and he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, the old covenant. And so I showed no mercy for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant, notice, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will enable them, in other words, to do the will of God. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Now, do you understand that's the glory of the new covenant? That as a result of Christ's death on the cross, the sinless eternal priest offers a sinless eternal sacrifice to pay for our sins eternally. So he's able to be merciful toward our iniquities and he's able to remember our sins no more. Because that's the issue with the old covenant. All they could ever do was highlight our sin but never solve our problem of sin so he could never offer real and lasting atonement, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was always pointing forward 
to the Lord Jesus. So every aspect of the new covenant is declaring that Jesus is better, that Christ is greater, that he's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, which is exactly what Hebrews 9.11 says. If you would, look at Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Skip down to verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. How exactly does that happen? Number four, because Jesus offers a better sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26 says, but as it is, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to do what? To put away sin. And how did he do that? By the sacrifice of himself. Now drop down to chapter 10, verse 11. It says, for every priest stands daily at this service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over again, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Linked directly to Hebrews 1, 3, propitiation for our sins. And then he sat down. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Which means the only way to be forgiven of your sin is to put your faith in Christ. The one true, sinless, eternal high priest who mediates a better covenant and offers a once for all perfect sacrifice to pay for all of your sins, past, present, and future so that you can be forgiven so that you can be perfected so that you can be redeemed for all time that my friends is right thinking about Jesus that Jesus is greater in every way imaginable now what's incredible to me look at verse 16 where does the author go Now, he goes back to Jeremiah 31, verse 16. And he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. Two things are highlighted. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And what I want you to grab a hold of is that the new covenant has everything to do with right thinking about Jesus and right living for Jesus. What is the right thinking about Jesus that we need to grab a hold of in its essence that you can be forgiven of your sin and it will be remembered no more? And what is the right living? that we need to do for Jesus, it's doing the will of God. That he has put his law 
on your hearts and on your minds. So this is not just theology for theology's sake. This is a sermon preached and proclaimed, written down and read in the gathering of the saints who are absolutely struggling with the difficulties of life and the persecution that is most certainly coming. So they're tempted to abandon this glorious salvation, the the new for the old, the superior for the inferior, the real thing for the shadow. So the author's pleading with them to know that it's only in Jesus that you can be forgiven of your sin. So it's only because of his death, burial, and resurrection. It's only because his blood was shed so that God can remember your sins no more. And when that's true, that right thinking is in place. Then the other half is equally true, that God empowers you by his spirit to do the will of God, even in the midst of the difficulty, even when life is really hard. He equips you, he enables you, and he empowers you to do what is holy and righteous and good. How does he do that? Well, he puts his law on your heart and on your mind that you might live rightly for Jesus. So just as soon as we have all that locked down, meaning we have right thinking about Jesus, then we're ready for right living for Jesus. And that's exactly where the author goes next. See, Jesus is God's eternal salvation. So in Hebrews 10, 19 to 21, the author summarizes the right thinking about Jesus that he's been arguing for since chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 21 says, since we have a great high priest. Verse 19 says, since we have the blood of his sacrifice. That's right thinking about Jesus. You're forgiven of your sin. Now we're ready for right living for Jesus. This is what it looks like to do God's will. Three things that outline the entire application section from 11.1 all the way to 13.25. Here's the three things, starting in verse 22. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God in faith. Number two, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So let us hold fast to Christ and persevere. Then number three, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So those three things are what it looks like to have right living for Jesus. So here's my plan. I want to camp on them. I want to do my very best to try and push them down into the nooks and crannies of our lives. Because in these three chapters, there's three things that the author keeps coming back to over and over again and keeps saying one after the other. And I've personally found them unbelievably helpful for my own life. And you see them right there in your outline. So he always starts by declaring the application, right? The three applications, draw near to God, hold fast to Christ, stir up one another to love. Those are the declarations. He starts with the declarations, but then he always puts it in the context of the difficulties of life that we must endure. And how does he do that? All three chapters, 
He gives us the motivation by looking forward to the reward of being with God for all eternity. So there's a very consistent pattern. Chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. Declaration, the context of difficulty, and the motivation to look forward to Christ's return and the glory of being in his presence for all eternity. So we're going to walk through them one at a time. We'll pause to think through application as we go. So let's start with A, draw near to God in faith. Declaration. Chapter 10, verse 39, the author says, But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Then he says in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So what's the application? It's to not just know about Jesus, but to make sure that you put your faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is greater. He's a sinless, eternal, great high priest who mediates a far better covenant. So put your faith in Christ. And not in lesser things, not in inferior things, not in the shadow of things. Have faith like the saints of old. You get this list. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sarah, Joseph, and Moses. Rahab, Gideon, and Samson. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith. So they died trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and they died looking forward to the coming of his eternal kingdom. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't hard. Doesn't mean that it wasn't difficult. Every single one of these people had to count the cost and had to make the decision that they were going to trust in God and persevere even in the midst of the difficulty. I mean, think about the difficulty of the people just in Hebrews 11. Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. Noah was ridiculed and made fun of his entire life. Abraham was called to leave all that he knew in love. And Moses endured the reproach of Christ. My point is, you have to count the cost when you put your faith in Christ. Because the promise is eternal life, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy life. I mean, my goodness. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 35 to 38. This is what faith looks like when you persevere in the midst of persecution. It says some were tortured, some suffered mockings, some floggings. Chains, imprisonment, being stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. I'm just saying, that's not easy. That's hard. Every single person in the hall of faith had to count the cost and decide. I'm going to keep following Jesus. I'm going to keep trusting God. But they all decided to do it, didn't they? 
And to them, it was a no-brainer. They weighed and measured, and they decided Jesus is better. But they calculated, right? They, they, they considered it. They weighed and measured, and they made that decision. In fact, look at verse 26. We get the weighing and the measuring. It says, by faith, Moses considered. He weighed and measured the reproach of Christ, and he decided that it was greater wealth than the treasures of all of Egypt. So he counted the cost, he weighed and measured, and he, did, he decided Jesus was well worth it. And be clear, why was it worth it? Verse 26 tells us, because he was looking forward to the reward. I mean, that's the consistent theme for every single one of these folks. They weigh and measure, and they're looking forward. Verse 10, Abraham looked forward to a city whose architect and builder is God. Verse 16, all looked forward and desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Verse 26, Moses was looking forward to the eternal reward. Verse 39, and all these, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised, but they trusted that God had something better in store for them, yet to come for all to enjoy as the people of God, that eternal heavenly home. Here's the question. Are you counting the cost? Are you counting the cost like these folks? And are you deciding on a daily basis before you ever get out of bed, that my hope is in Jesus. That's where my confidence lies, in his finished work on the cross. Are you making the decision, I'm believing that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him? Or are you neglecting this glorious salvation that the author's been arguing for since chapter 1, verse 1? Let me just say, if you're tempted to neglect so great a salvation, just read the warning in chapter 10, verse 26. The author says, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, which is the whole point, isn't it, of counting the cost that's why Jesus said, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if it requires him to forfeit his soul? In other words, what good are riches, wealth, money, power, and position if getting that means you endure judgment for all eternity. Wouldn't it be far better to give these things up that you can be in God's presence for all eternity? So you have to count the cost. You have to weigh and measure for yourself. But I would wholeheartedly encourage you to reach the same conclusion that Jim Elliott reached so many years ago when he declared he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
Oh, I appeal to you, put your faith in Christ and not in the things of this world. Repent, believe, and be saved and look forward to the eternal hope of being in Christ's presence for all eternity. Which brings us to application number two. Let us hold fast to Christ and persevere, which is Hebrews 12. Look at verse one. The author says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referencing the people listed in Hebrews 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run, run with endurance, run with perseverance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. What is Hebrews 12 all about? It's all about calling us to hold fast to our confession. So looking to Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why do we do that? So that we might persevere even in the midst of the difficulties. Because that's what it means to run with endurance. That's what it means to run with perseverance, looking to him who endured the cross so we might persevere through the trials of this life. And how do we do that? By putting off anything that hinders us from running, which includes not only blatant sin, of course we should put off blatant sin, but also every weight. So every other thing that is not sin that prevents us from running with endurance the race that is set before us which means good things as well as bad things. So earthly treasures, put them off. Material possessions, put them off. Unhelpful relationships, put them off. Making sure that your Instagram account has relevant new pictures, put it off. Any encumbrance, that it prevents you from persevering in the faith, running the race that is set before you, put it off. And of course that's going to be difficult. But so is the cross. So look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Now just think about that, that Jesus endured the cross. Verse 3 says, consider him, think about him, meditate him, make sure you have right thinking about him. Verse 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And why should we do that? Why should we consider Jesus? He tells us, so we may not grow weary or faint-hearted either in our struggle against sin or in our laying off of every weight that clings so closely, or I would suggest in anything that the Lord brings into our life that is difficult for us to endure. That's why the author uses the illustration of discipline. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. But be clear, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son or a daughter. But let me just ask, 
Is discipline any fun at all? When you think about discipline, do you say, whoop, yeah! No. Discipline is not fun. Discipline is hard and painful and unpleasant, but necessary and good. Verse 11 says, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And yet the author has no problem acknowledging the difficulty. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but in the end, it will ultimately yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And verse 14, the holiness that is necessary without which no one will see the Lord. I would suggest that here's where right thinking about Jesus is absolutely critical to having right living for Jesus. Because life is hard. I mean, life is really hard. We're obviously not being persecuted like the original audience. But that doesn't mean that we don't have our own difficulties that we're navigating And I know what some of you are going through. And it's extremely difficult. Some of you are enduring physical difficulties. Sickness and disease. Cancer and chronic pain. Recovery from injuries. And the daily fight just to be motivated enough to get out of bed in the morning. Some of you are enduring relational difficulties. So working or living with people who are angry and unkind. Or you have unreconciled relationships, estranged family members, the feeling of being misunderstood or accused with people gossiping behind your back and slandering your reputation. Some of you have financial heartache. You're just trying to pay the bills. You're just trying to not go deeper into that and to not just be constantly thinking about money all the time. And some of you are just getting older and you're losing loved ones. You know, you get to an age where you just feel like you're at the funeral home every other week. You know, I was on the phone with Gail passing yesterday. It was her birthday. So I called her, wanted to wish her a happy birthday and just talk to her for a few minutes. Gail's at the point now in the nursing home where she doesn't have cognitive ability to say what she's thinking. So I said, how are you doing, Gail? She can't answer. So I do all the talking. Then Ken is kind enough to translate and say, do you understand what Pastor Steve is saying? She can say yes. But that's the extent of our conversation. So I just keep talking, just telling her how much we love her, how much we're praying for her. Life is hard. Life is really hard. Yet the author says, run. Run. 
He says, run with endurance. Run with perseverance, the race that is set before you. He says, all these things are from God's hands. All these things are for your good. That God is at work in your life in all of these different ways, disciplining you. Not because he's being unkind, but because he loves you, because he cares for you, and because he's preparing you to be in his presence where there is fullness of joy. Brothers and sisters, that's right thinking. But how do we do that? How do we run with endurance when you don't even feel like getting out of bed in the morning? And you have no desire whatsoever to keep running. Well, you look to Jesus. You look to Jesus, both in what he's already done for you, enduring the shame of the cross for your salvation, the reality that because of his shed blood, he remembers your sins no more. You look to Jesus backward, and then you look to what Jesus is doing right now in your life and what he has prepared for you, because he is most certainly coming back so that where he is, there you may be also. Notice again the pattern right here in Hebrews 12, declaration to persevere, context of great difficulty and heartache. But what's the motivation? He gives it to you right in Hebrews 12. Look at verses 18 to 29. We must be looking forward to Christ's return and the promise of this unshakable kingdom, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels in festo gathering, and to Jesus, notice verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. So how do we do it? We look back to Jesus, shed blood for our salvation, And we look forward to Jesus, to the joy of being in his presence for all eternity. And we let that future glory invade this present reality, knowing that he will equip us, that he will enable us, and he will empower us to run with endurance, no matter how painful the situation, how dark the trial, or how difficult the process. My encouragement, run. Run with endurance. Run with perseverance. Knowing that he will equip you, he will empower you to run the race that he has set before you. But beloved, make sure that you're always looking to Jesus. Both his finished work on the cross and the certainty of his future return that he and us will dwell in the presence of his in his presence for all eternity. Now here's a great question. Are we expected to do that alone? Do we run alone? Are we expected to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus alone? To never lose our way, to never grow weary, to never grow faint-hearted by ourselves? No. Instead, we're called and commanded to do it together as a body of believers. Remember Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting our gathering together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
So application number three, stir up one another to love and good deeds. Doing the will of God, which is what Hebrews 13 is all about. Look at verse one. The author says, let brotherly love continue. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Verse three, remember those who are in prison. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor and not defiled. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money by being content with what you have. Verse 9, do not be led astray by strange teaching. This is what it looks like to stir up one another to love in good deeds. In other words, all these things are what it looks like to do the will of God. Which is why I started with William Wilberforce. Because his decision to put his faith in Christ impacted every single area of his life. Because he didn't check out of society. He didn't quit his job. He didn't join a monastery. But instead he endured the difficulty of engaging his culture from a Christian worldview. Or as verse 13 says, going outside the camp and bearing the shame, the same reproach that Christ endured. You know, I think Craig nailed it last week when he used the language of insiders and outsiders. Because none of us like being an outsider. But that's exactly what we are as Christians. We're strangers. We're aliens in this world. We're outsiders. And why is that? Because this world is not our home. Verse 7, verse 14, 13, 14 says, because here we have no lasting city, but we're seeking the city yet to come. Chapter 11, verse 38 says, we're people of whom this world is not worthy because we don't fit in with this world's thinking. And we shouldn't be trying to fit in with this world's thinking. So I'm appealing to you to embrace the reality that you're an outsider in the here and now. Embrace that reality. I'm an outsider, knowing that when you embrace that reality, you're weighing and measuring. And you're saying, I'm happy to be an outsider now, because one day soon, I will be an insider. When Christ returns and establishes his eternal kingdom, I will be an insider with all the other people who ran with endurance the race that was set before them. Looking backward to Christ's finished work on the cross, his blood that was shed, you're forgiven of your sin. And looking forward with eager anticipation to his return when you will be with him as an insider in his kingdom for all eternity. But we do that together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need one another in order to get from here (laughs) to there. And we need leaders, verse 17, who are keeping watch over our souls. So as we wrap up our time in Hebrews, Let us be those who spur one another on to love and good deeds. So loving God, loving the people of God, 
and doing the will of God. And all the more as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Because Hebrews is not just theology for theology's sake, but it's right thinking about who Jesus is so that we might have right living together as the people of God for Jesus. Jesus is greater in every way. And Jesus has promised that after we have persevered in doing the will of God, we will receive the great reward of entering God's eternal heavenly city forever. So let us run. Let us run with endurance. And let us run with perseverance together. The race that God has set before us. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we're so grateful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for how it speaks into the reality of our lives, that it is always relevant for the things that we're wrestling through. Lord, I pray that we would have right thinking. I pray that we would glory in the reality that Jesus is greater than the angels greater than Moses, that he's greater than the Old Testament high priests, that he has accomplished our salvation because he has offered himself once for all so that we can be forgiven of our sin so that God can remember our sin no more and make us a people for his own possession And that he can equip us and empower us. That we're looking forward to his return. Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace to do that well as a body of believers. That we would be stirring up one another. Encouraging one another. Spurring one another on to love and good deeds. All the more as that day draws near. Give us grace to do that well for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.